Welcome to the second edition of the Colorado Child Abuse and Neglect Attorneys podcast. You can follow our series at soundcloud.com slash Colorado Attorney Training. My name is Charmaine Britton and I am your host for this series. Today we are discussing timeliness to permanency. Since the 1980 passage of the Adoption Assistance and Child Welfare Act, achieving permanency has been one of the predominant goals for children in care along with the goals of safety and well-being. Lately, we've seen an increase in the number of children entering foster care while those exiting foster care have stagnated. Colorado, in particular, lags behind when it comes to length of time between termination of parental rights and permanent placement, with the state average hovering almost a month more than the national average. Having a permanent family provides children with the stability that they require and promotes a sense of belonging. On the other hand, a lack of permanency can often lend itself to an array of behavioral, cognitive, and emotional disturbances in children as well as a disconnect with their communities and a prolonged sense of unexplained grief over the sudden removal of their homes and families from their lives. Colorado does not achieve timely permanency according to the latest Child and Family Services review results. To discuss this topic, we've invited Justice Brian Boatwright from the Colorado Supreme Court, Jan James, Director of Child and Family Services in Adams County, Colorado, Judge Gail Meinster, District Court Judge for the First Judicial District Court of Colorado, and Pax Moultrie, former Assistant County Attorney in Arapahoe County, Colorado, and now a magistrate in Jefferson County. Welcome everyone, thank you so much for joining me in this very important conversation. My first question is, why is achieving permanency so important? Justice Boatwright, can we please start with you? Sure, if you think of your own life, if you don't know where you're living, you don't know who your family is, you don't know where you're gonna put your head that night, you just are in survival mode. So you're trying to survive and not thrive. So I think you, even if you just talk about your own personal life, you want to make sure that there are just some foundation pieces in your life that allow you to succeed and, and to do your best. Mm-hmm. Other comments? Uh, Jan, what would you say about that? Why is it so important? Well, I certainly agree. I think, you know, when, when kids come into care and are taken from their homes and communities and families, there is a real undoing of the, 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 the work that has gone on before in their lives. I mean, they come to us uh, typically traumatized. They come to us having been in difficult situations, oftentimes uh, struggling in school, struggling in their communities. They come to us and there is kind of this freeze point that happens when kids come into us and we've taken them out of their home. And I think to really help them begin to move toward that place of thriving, I agree with you. They have to know who it is they're gonna come home to at the end of the school day, who it is that's gonna help them with their homework, who's gonna help them 
prepare for, for the next day and for the important moments in their lives. And when they have that stability, I think that kids can, they can recover, they can, they can grow and develop. And, and permanency is one of the key tools that we have, I think, in our toolbox, which is finding a permanent home and family situation for that youth. Once they have that, they can, they can re-put down roots if it is required to re-put down roots, but they can put those down and begin to grow. Okay, great. Uh, Judge Meinstrom or Pax? I would say that it's hard to define permanency. I think we're getting better at knowing what permanency means, but I know that when we fail to provide permanency, we have failed that child. Before I was on the bench, I was a guardian ad litem, and I always remember a young man I had, he was a little boy when I first had him, he was 10 or 11 when I became his GAL. And on his 18th birthday, he didn't want to be part of the child welfare system anymore, and we drove him to a shelter and left him there. And that's a failure that I carry with me every day. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's poignant, thank you. And I would think, in addition to what people have already said, the, as simply as I can put it is, is that every person and every child on this planet wants to connect to somebody else. Mm -hmm. And so when you think of it that way, whether it is, if we're talking in the terms of legal permanence, as specified under the law, this is an adoptive home, or this is an APR, allocation of parental responsibilities, some other type of legal guardianship, or if it's just maintaining connections to people, professionals or not, long term, that our children and youth can connect to. To me, that is what's so important about permanence. It allows our children and youth to come up and be thriving members of society. I'm hearing the word thriving quite a bit here, and children need permanency to thrive. Uh, and, but we know that that does not happen for kids who are in care and uh, not finding permanency. So Jan, what are some of the long-term outcomes for youth that you see in your county when cases languish and timely permanency is not achieved? It's a roller coaster ride for kids and it's a roller coaster ride often for the families where they have been living, many of them long-term, and the court processes are being protracted. It's often a very difficult time for kids and for the families. When permanency isn't achieved timely for kids, sometimes we see kids kind of give up because part of the process involves that they still have to see their parents if they are, uh, if they are placed in foster care, they're placed in a home that is uh, expected to be a permanent home, and those continued contacts leave them feeling very uncertain about their future. And for those kids that leave, I was thinking about your story, Judge Meinster, and I was thinking about the kids who then are aging out of our system. That one is a hard one. It's heartbreaking to think about kids not go only going to a shelter, but then those kids, we expect them to become young adults somehow without support. And they go into they go into school, they go into a college situation. Who are they going to call in the middle of the night when they have a flat tire, when they're trying to get from the university back to wherever they're staying? Those are the sorts of things that I think I think about about our failure as a system to achieve timely permanency for kids and some of the negative results that can happen.
One of the things that I noticed, and I was a trial judge for 12 years and did juvenile for 10, was the kids that we don't get permanency for, they learn to live in chaos, and that becomes their normal. And even then, when you put them into a home that is calm, they kind of create chaos because that's what they're used to. And so the longer that they're out of the home, the harder it is for them to settle into a home. I, there was a good example given to me once about we all return to our normal. If you have a child who's normally an A student and at midterms they're getting C's, they'll work really hard to get A's. If you have a child who's normally a C student at midterms but they're getting A's, they'll coast and get C's because we all return to our normal. And I think that these kids that just constantly live in chaos and uncertainty, that's sort of what they come to expect. And so it's hard to place them, I think have success. And far too many of them end up homeless and they are mentally ill, they don't have job skills, and a lot of them end up unfortunately in the criminal justice system. And that was my next question. From uh, the perspective of being on the bench, what are some of the long-term outcomes that you see uh, with kids who do not have timely permanency? The homelessness, unemployment, mental illness and involvement in the criminal justice system. Okay. I can remember when I was, uh, again, on the trial court bench, I, at one point I was doing criminal and, and juvenile at the same time, and I would have juvenile docket day kind of in the morning, then I'd have criminal docket day in the afternoon, and I'd be doing a sentencing, and it was almost like that six-year-old now was 26, and I, because the, the similarities in, in their background, because we'd get you know, we get their backgrounds and see what's happened to them. And I, I think sometimes as I was looking at them, I'd say, oh my gosh, you were six years old this morning and now I'm, I'm sentencing you. Because you can kind of see um, these kids that have turned into to young adults that don't have any connection and sort of that, the chaos. Again, I use that word a lot, but that's what, how they kind of live. Sure. You see them recreate their parents' lives a lot of time too, I think. And I think even with the adult criminal justice system, some of these outcomes that people are talking about are mirrored within our own cases within the juvenile justice system. You have young people removed from their homes, they don't get permanency in a timely fashion, then they're placed in a foster home which they may blow out of, then they're placed in a group home where they pick up a charge, and that makes them harder to place, and so it's this domino effect of negative effects for our children if they are not receiving permanency in a timely fashion. I think one of the most discouraging things for me is the generational piece of it. How often now I see a child, maybe I was their guardian ad litem for, and they're coming back into the system with their own children. So it's not just an immediate impact for that child. It could be for generations. Absolutely. That, that puts a different light on it. Colorado has not done well on the Child and Family Services Review in terms of our outcomes related to permanency. And Jan, I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit uh, about what the data says about what's happening in Colorado. I know in Colorado we can do better. I, I fully believe we can do better. And I, I know as I looked at the data and the national figures on, on the data that we're, we're performing about where the rest of the nation is. And it's, it's not good for kids, it's not good enough, and we can do better. But I do think that some of the complexities around how do we really identify when our own 
system as we're working together that we are getting stuck we are coming to mirror some of the chaos that was being discussed before which i think also sometimes happens in child welfare cases is that we begin to reflect some of the dynamics that have gone on in the family system that have brought them to us we start then fighting with each other or struggling to talk to each other and i really do believe that it often if it goes unnoticed, it can negatively impact our progress in being able to move things forward. And I certainly agree with you. I think that there are moments that we need to pause. The county attorney is so essential in the process from the child welfare side. I, I think one of the things that I do almost weekly is ask caseworkers and supervisors, have you talked to the county attorney? Have you all sat down and, and talked a little bit about what it is that you're seeing that is going on as you're in the home, as you are interacting, as you're hearing from the mental health center or the substance abuse provider? Have you sat down and had a conversation about what it is that you're seeing? Justice Boatwright or Judge Meinster, what would you add to that? I think it's a exciting time also to be in in this field and that we have the advantage now of research and some data that does show us what works and I think Colorado in some ways is relatively progressive. Some of the specialty courts I think there you see the results of really good collaboration and doing doing what works and data will show that we have better outcomes those way. Yeah, I, I think I agree with Judge Meinster. It is an exciting time because I, I've seen a culture change. I started in juvenile in 2001, and, and even way before then, I was a law clerk for a judge who did juvenile. And just seeing where we've come in that period of time, when I started, we didn't have best practice teams. We didn't have specialty courts. And I think that we've gotten so much better at working together because of that piece that Pax was talking about, the lack of communication, that if we, we, got, we brought the different players to the table ahead of time to talk about how we can improve communication through the best practices. And we've got other programs that we've instituted, one's called Dancer, and I can't remember what all the, the, what the whole thing means, but it, it's talking about bringing in uh, specialty court practices into the into the trial court so I do think we're moving forward and I think that we're making a lot of progress and it's catching on it I think the hardest part was making the culture change and now that it is it's expected that we're going to have these best practices teams and the specialty courts we're getting better at what we're doing in each one of those it's not it's not sort of that culture change of you know, I'm the judge, I'm going to sit behind the bench. It's much more collaborative. And that was a, that's a transition. And I think the new judges that come in have to learn that juvenile is different. One primary difference, as you were talking, reminded me that we aren't litigating, like in a civil case, you litigate what happened. In juvenile cases, you're litigating what's happening. And that makes it harder because the the circumstances are constantly changing all the time and sometimes very, very rapidly. Pax, do you have anything to add to that? I think just to tie into the pieces about communication and collaboration is nobody comes into juvenile law anymore because that's a place you start and you leave because it's easy to get into. This is not a place where attorneys come to die 
or that's a stepping stone for anybody, anything else. This is the work that people choose to do because it's important and they're passionate about it. And so that's what makes this special. And I think those are the things that can, with good communication and collaboration, improve timeliness to permanency. Let's dig a little bit deeper into what's happening in Colorado. The CFSR findings report noted that the following issues. First, that there was a lengthy appeals process. There were attorney delays. And also the fact that the Child Welfare Agency was waiting to identify and adopt a resource before filing for termination of parental rights. So for each of these issues, what's happening at the county court level to perpetuate the lack of timeliness to permanency that results in these much poorer outcomes? Let's start with a lengthy appeals process. What's going on there? Well, I think one of the problems, we have to always be mindful of due process at the same time that we're talking about permanency. And sometimes those run into each other. For example, to have a meaningful appeal, you have to have a, a copy of the transcript from what's happened in court. And so preparation of those, getting that information transmitted to the court takes time, you know, making sure that there's a thorough review of, of what's happened with a fresh set of eyes. A lot of times an appellate attorney is different than the, the trial attorney for the respondent parents if there's a, a termination. So that becomes just part of the problem. One of the things I can tell you that we're doing is we've started to, again, this phrase this best practices, we've started a best practices appellate team to look at how we're doing business, how can we get the transcripts prepared more expediently, how can we get the delays in terms of continuances cut down, what are the judges doing in terms of prioritizing those types of cases, and the results of all that are to be determined because it literally just started within the last six months. So there's not, I can't tell you that we've succeeded in doing anything other than we've, we've recognized that there's an issue and we're moving forward on it. But it's not like we're saying kind of the same thing. There's a culture change in terms of recognizing that we've got to move more quickly because of this permanency piece. And echoing what Pax said, you know, this, this stuff of, well, it's not important, it's just juvenile. That has gone by the wayside to the extent that it existed. It's now we need to make sure that we're not delaying permanency for these children because we realize that if something gets reversed, it upsets the entire process and disrupts the, uh, you know, the permanency for the child. But again, you've always got to be mindful of the due process piece too because if you're terminating parental rights, that's a very, very important constitutional and emotional and valuable right that you got to make sure you've done it correctly. And I would also I think from the county perspective that's the tension is that you want to give parents and families enough time to see if they can comply to see if they can be safe enough to raise these children before you move to that uh, the process of termination of parental rights because you don't want to have something come back on appeal when you know a judicial officer says you could have given so many more months you know there's case law that says essentially how long is long enough it, six months might be enough for one family right now i think i checked recently i think the court of appeals is averaging four to six months on a, from when the time the appeal is filed to getting the mandate back so if we're talking about trying to get 
permanency for a child within a year, essentially you're potentially looking at filing a, a petition to terminate parental rights at six months. That might be enough for some families, it might not be. Could you speak to that, Jim? Uh, in terms of kind of that tension between giving parents enough time to try to get things together and provide a safe home for the children and the children needing that permanent home as quickly as possible, especially for younger children. Yeah, I, th I think um, I, I really appreciated your, your choice of word there because I do think of the dynamic tension that exists because as kids are, certainly we have to think about, you know, the age of the child as we're talking about this. Most of our kids, if they're five years old, one year is a fifth of their life that they are kind of unsettled uh, while we are working with their case. And so it's important to really remember that we, as we are working in child welfare, one of the things that we're doing very differently is really approaching families in, a, in an attempt to really engage with them up front, to help articulate for them that we believe and see them as the experts on their own family system. And of course, families come to us at pretty significantly bad moments in their lives. It doesn't define who they've always been as a parent, uh, but certainly when they are coming to our door, there is often a lot of shame. There is often a lot of uh, fear that exists for those family systems. And, and sometimes that comes out, if we don't work really hard up front to engage with them, it comes out as anger, as blaming, as seeing that apartment is a problem. And it, it's, it takes time sometimes to work through that dynamic in the case. Um, and But if we can effectively engage them in those first several months and we can get them to see their kids, typically we have better chance of those families really starting to do the work that is needed to be able to be able to identify and acknowledge something went wrong in my family system. This was a moment uh, where something went badly wrong in my family. Once they can get there, I think that we can then help them to engage with services, help them to engage with, uh, with providers who can work with and help the family. And there is a point in a case that if the family cannot get there, at least from child welfare side, there is a moment, and we often have to talk to caseworkers about this, yes, you want to engage the family, yes, you want to help the family, the family system, but there is a moment at which we have to really say, if the parent is not taking some steps to make changes, we have to then kind of focus on what are the needs of the children. And that's often a hard shift for caseworkers to, to really make. What is the county attorney's role in helping to facilitate this process, Pax? I think, again, uh, certainly communication. And that's going to be something that I'm always going to be a proponent of, in part because it's, it's communication with the caseworkers. Um, certainly if there's some sort of internal process within the department to make those decisions, com communication with the other administrators or other people who are involved in making those decisions, talking to Respondent Parent Council. What are they seeing from their end with their clients that they feel like is the barrier for their clients? 
what else can the department to, do to facilitate that? Talking to the guardian litem, what are they seeing? Um, I wish I had a different answer than that, but I don't because I think it's so important. Again, I think each one of the players in the system has a piece of this family and they have a piece of the family's interests and as a whole when we're working together I think we can move things forward um, but as far as specific timing I don't have a great answer for that I think generally it's a case-by-case -case basis and primarily looking at the children's needs well I, I will say when I was on the juvenile bench to me information was gold you know, the more information you can have from a variety of perspectives, the better decision you can make. The, um, you know, if, if you have information and kind of echoing what Pac said in terms of the communication, if, if you have information from the GAL, from the respondent parent, from the CASA volunteer, which is, uh, to me, was always really valuable information because they were just a very objective person, you know, it, the decisions became a little more I guess clear, I don't want to use the word obvious, but became clear the more information you had because sometimes the parent may just not get along with the caseworker, but but they're getting along great with the guardian ad litem and they're doing what they need to be doing. Sometimes they're not getting along with the guardian ad litem, but they're getting along with the caseworker. So the the variety of, of information from different perspectives is is probably the most important thing. And I would add just from a county attorney perspective, in, in relating to that relationship with the, the agency, the department as a client, just really explaining to the caseworkers how important the information is. I've never had a problem presenting something in court so long as I have information. I can make whatever reasonable argument you want me to make. But it's harder to do that if little pieces of information I didn't know are coming out later. I'd rather have information up front and have the court have that information and then we can ferret out those issues. Um, but I think really having, I think the caseworkers having an understanding of how important information is to attorneys is really important. I think of the law as a language. It's, you know, it's kind of like math. And so we use words and terms to add things up. And so when we're missing pieces because we don't have the information, things don't add up. And so I've always told caseworkers, I can just give it all to me and I'll sort it out and we'll go from there. So I do think that just having that understanding of how important information is from you know, a county attorney perspective advising a caseworker is, is important to know. I think it's very interesting because you know, when we talk about the work that we're doing and I think about the role of the county attorney, I really appreciate what you're saying because from, from my perspective, when we're going into court, caseworker, we, we are the one party standing there that is not trained as an attorney. And so we don't always understand the processes. We don't always understand what is needed. And, um, and what we do well is we can, we are really trained to think about child safety and parental protective capacities and, and factors related to the family system. And, and I have always seen the county attorney as such a vital player in this to really not only help us to translate, translate the court processes to the caseworker, but also to help then elevate the voice 
of the caseworker in the courtroom and have the clarity uh, that you were talking about. Let me know the information. Let's talk about that together so that we have a shared understanding of what the issues are that you're seeing caseworkers so that I can help to articulate those in a meaningful way in, in the courtroom. That's such a vital piece in this whole thing. I think that's the value of multidisciplinary training because we all speak a slightly different language and to some extent we've got to learn each other's languages. And that of course involves professionalism and respect amongst the stakeholders. I agree and again it, it, a lot of it I think goes back to relationship building is I need my caseworkers to understand that when I'm asking them a million different questions about the work they've done. It's not because I'm questioning the work, it's because I'm trying to provide advice and be protective and be able to articulate their position in an effective manner to a court and to other parties. And I always hope caseworkers feel comfortable talking in court. I know a lot of times they don't, but what they have to say is so valuable. Right, they are the voice from the family. Let's, let's go to another area that the CFSR found as delaying permanency, and, and they called it attorney delays. And I'm wondering if you all could comment on what some of those attorney delays might be that resulted in delayed permanency. I think the court plays a major role in that. The, the law really makes it difficult to continue cases or hearings in a dependency and neglect case are pretty strict timelines and I think that's part of the court's job to enforce those timelines. I think certainly from the county attorney perspective is again some of the timing of when certain motions are being filed, hearings being set, and I don't want to speak on behalf of respondent parent counsel certainly, but the some of the concerns I've heard from respondent parent counsel is that is that they can't always reach their clients. You know, the, the, the families that we're dealing with struggle in their daily lives, and so they've got a lot going on. Their attorney may not be the first person to, that they think of in this court process to call and provide updates. And so sometimes the only place that a respondent parent counsel may be seeing their client is at court. And so then they're getting the information at court, and then they're having to update the other parties at court as to what's going on. And that creates a delay because the professionals have to figure out, well, did what this parent said actually get followed up on by the caseworker or the guardian litem or all of those kind of things. And those are some of the things that I think sometimes are beyond attorney control. And I think we can't talk about any of this without just talking about the staggering volume that that everybody sees. We talk about having these hearings and you may have, you know, I can remember my very first docket day having 24 cases I was reviewing in one morning. And, you know, maybe that's a, a normal day. I just, I remember thinking, how am I going to get through all of this? And one of the things that I learned, kind of piggybacking on what Pac said, is that I learned that you have to have a certain amount of rumbling in the courtroom because the respondent parent counsel's got to be talking to their client and then they have information, they go over and talk to the GAL and the caseworker. And it, so it's, it's not this Perry Mason quiet courtroom scene. It's, there's a lot of hubbub going on, but I learned that's how you got to get business done because information is being transmitted very quickly. And again, as I said earlier, we're litigating what's happening. I mean, I can't tell you how many times in 10 years I had something where something happened the night before. Someone relapsed or someone ran away or someone was arrested. 
it just happens that way. So the volume and the constant shifting of sands is, is also a challenging piece. Let's talk a little bit about concurrent planning. Jan, do you want to define concurrent planning? And then I'd like to hear how it happens in our system. Concurrent planning is, is really kind of having a direction that we're walking, but also having then a backup plan that we begin to shift toward the front. So globally, that's how I think about it. And I don't understand, frankly, the reluctances in our state to, I, I don't understand the legal reasons for not doing concurrent planning, uh, because I do think at times it could inspire parents to really begin to say to themselves, I might need to think about really going to treatment or beginning to think about how I'm going to get my life on track so that I can have my kids with me. So I, I don't think of it in terms of legal terms because I don't live in that world, but I, I do think there is some benefit from being able to have those conversations with the folks who have both the, the child with them and with the parent to really think about what are we going to do if you are not able to make progress. Many of our parents come at the last hour and suddenly that's the moment they're going to get clean, they're going to get sober so that they can get their kids back or that they're going to do things differently. And it, it feels like at times that everybody has so much hope that they're placing on the parent ultimately getting their lives together, that that is when we, we, we kind of follow the waves of hope and despair with the family system. So I would love to hear from others about concurrent planning. Well, I think in, in discussing these issues with Respondent Parent Council, their concern is that once you start concurrent planning, once you put that on the table in court especially, the concern I've heard is that from their perspective, the clients start to, to lose hope. And so instead of it being a motivating factor, it's a demotivating factor. Well, you're already making other plans for my children, so why should I, why should I try? You know what's fascinating about that is in family engagement meetings, for years we've talked about at what point, and do you have the conversation with the parent at the table when you have to begin asking those questions? Because you do have to start asking those questions at some point about if you, and, and not in a threatening way, but if you, if you have not been able to figure out how to make some changes, parent, we have to start thinking about a different direction for your child. We need your help to decide what we're going to do to ensure that your child has the permanency that they deserve and as we talk about that on the child welfare side, we also get stuck with that same question. Do you talk about it with them? Do you not? Is, does it demotivate? Does it motivate? Uh, so that's kind of a tricky thing to ponder. Have you had any experience regarding whether, I guess, having those discussions early and often makes a difference as opposed to three or four or five or six months into the legal case? if it's more normalized through the casework process or through the extra kind of outside court process with all of the professionals that people are talking to, do you have any experience with whether that seems to make concurrent planning easier, I guess, for lack of a better term, on the families? 
I, I have, actually, and I think that uh, sometimes one of the barriers with that, child welfare is one of those systems where we can have a lot of turnover. Um, frankly, we do about the average in the country about our retention of staff. But when you have new caseworkers, just like when you have a new therapist and you have a baby caseworker or a therapist, when you talk to them about engaging a family, they're often reluctant to have those hard conversations up front, to speak the truth, to speak the facts to the parents. If we don't do this, if we can't get here, if, if you can't get to the place that you're beginning to develop these or strengthen these parental protective capacities that were weakened in the moment that you came to our attention, then we're gonna have to think about another option for your child. I think that that is often hard for newer caseworkers uh, as they're coming in the field. There is some seasoning that has to happen, I think, for people to have those critical conversations. But it's absolutely uh, true that if you can have those from day one, from that first family engagement meeting, I do believe that it makes a difference. I think one of the things that uh, I'm seeing evolve in, in referenced earlier is getting the family involved and using the family for kinship placement because I do think concurring planning, concurrent planning is easier when you're talking about adoption with a relative versus adoption with a stranger. Now, of course, there can be odd family dynamics in that, but I think that, that the increased involvement of the family has made concurrent planning a little bit easier, if that's, that's probably not the right word, but, but it, it's a little more seamless, I guess. One of the, the big issues that's really come up is the importance of communication and facilitating that communication amongst all of the parties in the case, the respondent parent counsel, the GAL, the caseworker, the attorney, the county attorney. So how do we facilitate better communication? Well, I think one of the things that, that uh, we started doing in Jeffco, and I'm sure they're still doing, are the family conferences where we have the family get together and have these conversations and try to have all of the professionals there, but also have extended family there. So that, you know, all of a sudden we're not looking for placement or I, I can't tell you how many times this happened. The child had been placed in a potential adoptive home and uh, at the last minute, grandma or grandpa would come forward and you've got a two year old or a 18 month old that has spent almost a year in a foster family's home, has bonded and now the parents come in and, and that creates, it's really hard to disrupt that attachment. So it's, it's better to have the family and everybody there together, you know, to have those, those conferences ahead of time. Other thoughts on how to facilitate communication? What about between the caseworker and the county attorney? I think it takes tremendous intentionality because everybody is so busy in our system. Everybody is running from one thing to the next and, and there is that intentionality that has to just be built in, which isn't always to accomplish, but I think that if we can, we can recognize maybe when problems are popping up in some of the external systems and we can, we can attend to that uh, and use those moments and use that as a reminder that we need to connect, I think it goes a long way.
I agree with that, and I think certainly from the county attorney perspective towards caseworkers, just be mindful that this is really hard work, and I don't think that, I've never met a county attorney who didn't think the caseworkers are working hard, but really being sensitive to that, um, and not just being a legal textbook. For, I guess, a lack of a better example, I think you have to be a lot of things. You have to be sometimes a personal support, you have to be a friend, you're an advisor on the law, sometimes on life, and just be mindful that the caseworkers are putting their heart and soul into what they're doing for these families. And as an attorney, if you can be a place that they come, they feel comfortable to come for legal advice, that I think improves the communication, it improves the ability to advocate for the department with respect to the other parties. Again, with respect to the other parties, my suggestion and advice is generally everybody rem remembering what we're doing this for, why we're here. And I think sometimes attorneys in particular can get sort of siloed, they can en get entrenched in their positions, but I think once we are all reminded why we're here, I mean, we, we each have a different piece in this, but we're each ultimately, I think, striving for the same goal to make sure that these kids can be happy and safe and with their families. And I think a judicial officer can create an atmosphere in the courtroom where people can feel comfortable. I think that sometimes expecting things that are unreasonable is unfair and that judicial officers need to be respectful and mindful that this is really hard work. And you know, a lot of times I would just talk directly with the caseworker if I felt that that was better, but I wanted them to feel comfortable that they could be candid with me when we were talking. We've come a long way as far as getting the professionals to talk together. The complaints I get now are that there's so many meetings with so many acronyms. The piece I think we don't have down yet is including the family voice consistently and especially the child's voice. How do we do that? There's a big emphasis now or, or a shift towards children appearing in court. And the way we do it in Jefferson County for the most part is GALs bring in their kids to meet with the judge privately. The GAL is there. Um, but, and we also have a lot of children who come to hearings. Are there any other practical pieces of advice that you would give to county attorneys working with departments of human services and caseworkers? to increase the timeliness to permanency. I like what you said earlier. You can't just come in as a legal textbook knowing how to do the legal aspects of the job. That part of being compassionate, listening, being aware, helping to translate sometimes to the caseworker, the legal processes, sometimes to translate to your colleagues the, the reason child welfare is doing the work the way that they're doing it is such an important role. It's that translating to the court, translating to others what it is that is going on in the child welfare world as we are working with family systems is such an important piece. And I, I, I really do believe that you have to, on some level, that has to drive your passion for the work as much as being an attorney um, in, in the courtroom. You really have to be driven by that passion to learn and to understand and, and help translate. I agree with that. And I think um, being open, if you're a county attorney, to understanding, really trying to understand yourself, some of the human services, child welfare aspects, and 
you know, I'm, I don't claim to be any type of expert in the practice of child welfare by any means, but certainly when I'm listening to the caseworkers, I'm listening to what they're telling me as far as the child protection piece and the, the safety piece. And really my advice is stemming from how do I get you to where you want to be? How do I keep you from pitfalls at court? Um, help me help you, I guess, for lack of a better, easier way to put it. Any other thoughts on how to facilitate that better communication and uh, connection between county attorneys and caseworkers? Well, I, I think it, it ideally this would be a goal is that there would be communication ahead of court <laughs> because you know there's so many times where the caseworker is literally whispering in the county attorney's ear as the hearing is going on. Um, and that's where sometimes I would just say, counsel, can I just talk directly to the caseworker? Because, it, you know, just kind of stop the, the translation piece of it. But, but that, again, I, I don't want to be unrealistic about time demands. But certainly, the more you communicate ahead of court, the more efficient and the better orders you will get in court. Because, again, I, I never claim to be the smartest guy in the room, but if you give me the information, you know, I felt like I could come to the right decision, but I needed that information. If it wasn't, and one of the things I would tell the county attorney and the caseworker repeatedly is, if it's not in the family services plan, I don't know it because I'm not living the case. I'm reading about the case and going into court where you're living with the case and things can change so rapidly. So. Does anybody have a, a story or an anecdote that they wanted to tell today that you haven't had the chance to uh, share yet? Well, I, I, I would pick up on what Judge Meinster said earlier about what is permanency. Just this last week at National Adoption Day, we had an adoption of a child that had been placed when he was two years old. He's now 18 and they did an adoption as an adult. He was in the home the entire time. He had a lot of medical and emotional needs. And so I think the family was very hesitant to adopt and bear that, bear the burden financially or the risk financially of what that was gonna mean. But that child had permanency, even though we didn't do the adoption for 16 years. But he was in the same home the entire time. And just seeing that was just food for the soul for me, and I think for Judge Meinster, who did the adoption. Any last words uh, as we conclude this podcast about timeliness to permanency and the county attorney's role in that? I think just remembering from the county attorney's perspective that you also have a certain role in this family's life, and the, the way I practice laws, these, these families are not just files. And so I try to get to know them as much as I can. I try to interact with them to the extent that, you know, counsel will let me at court. Uh, and just being mindful of those things, and I think that can be impactful because if you are a parent and you see the person who is bringing you before the court being empathetic, maybe you think that you can do this. Maybe it feels like one less barrier. With respect to communicating with or interacting with the department and the caseworkers, again, I think just both parties having open minds as to where the other is coming from. The 
department's understanding that generally the city and county attorneys are not telling you no just to tell you no. <laughs> We're trying to be protective and make sure that uh, you're in compliance with the law for what it is that you want to do. But also I think the city and county attorneys trying to really have an understanding of where the social workers are coming from from a social work and child welfare perspective. And, and I, I don't think that just being kind can be understated. And maybe that's what Pax was kind of referring to in, in terms of it's so much easier to trust people when they're kind. And at the, at the end of the day, they've got to think that you've got their best interests at heart and you've got to be able to, to convey that in some way. So I, I just think that if we de-escalate a little bit and recognize that this is just different than other types of court, I think we'll be way more effective if we can just be kind to each other, be kind to the parents. I mean, I think we all naturally want to be kind to the children, but I think being kind to each other is is helpful. It improves communication, de-escalates situations. I, I, I think that can't be understated. I always feel like the people that walk through my courtroom doors have been beat up by life, and they don't need me to beat them up anymore. And Jan, do you have any, you have the last word here. I, I really love that, be kind. It's simple. It's simple and yet it's so hard, especially when we're dealing with families that aren't always kind. Often the caseworker's experience is, is not one of even in trying to reach out to families, trying to support families of experiencing that in return. Our caseworkers are often so beaten up just from the exchanges that they have with the families. When they walk into the courtroom, and this isn't anyone's fault, it's not intentional, but there is a certain devaluing that caseworkers sometimes feel in the courtroom. And there is that aspect of when a judge says, talk to me, let me hear directly kind of what you're thinking. It does change things for caseworkers and it helps them to feel like their, their work and what they've put into trying to engage and help the family matters. Well, thank you all very much for joining me in this very important discussion about timeliness to permanency. I appreciate your time and your wisdom and your sharing today. Thank you. County attorneys can and do make a difference in achieving timely permanency for children and families. In fact, they must, as the stakes are too high for children, as more timely permanency for them means that they will have better lives in the short and long term. We know there are various issues related to county attorney office involvement in delaying permanency, but we heard two main points today. One, the importance of information. As Justice Boatwright said, information is gold. So that means that caseworkers and county attorneys and respondent counsel and GALs must exchange information so that we get the fullest possible picture of what's happening with the family. We've heard today about the importance of communication, communication, and communication. So communicate and partner with caseworkers and prepare them for court. Communicate with the court and help them understand various options. Bottom line, communicate. 
because together we can achieve more timely permanency for children and families. Follow this series at soundcloud.com slash Colorado Attorney Training or subscribe for free on iTunes so you don't miss an episode. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for the next podcast in our series.